Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Back in May of this year, Sean Kelly, former Director of Payment and Risk Operations at Seat, joined me and shared his you know, unique and unexpected journey into fraud prevention that started at a then small startup selling event tickets well over seven years ago. Sean had the privilege of building the fraud prevention and trust and safety department, as well as including payments under that umbrella from scratch. Stumbled upon new challenges of processing payments and lots of problems to fix. And just like any of us in online fraud, especially if you love strategy and problem solving on the bigger level, it's something we all enjoy. At that time, he was really, you know, reflecting on his time in that role and how he could use that time to start a new chapter. Now that he's had, you know, some time to think about that time in that role, he has decided to, he's kind of decided what his next chapter is. And I'll let him share a little bit about that in just a minute. But as he's thinking about that next chapter, he was sharing with me some of the some of the processes that he oversaw and implemented during his time at ZGeek that I know you guys will really enjoy hearing about. I know that some of your favorite episodes are the ones like both of the ones with Matt Vega and Sid Shaw from Novo or Neil McCurig from eShop World, where they really talk about process improvement and strategies and, you know, go in the weeds a little bit. And so that was what I asked Sean to share, because both of these are something that wherever you are responsible for fraud and whatever piece of fraud you're responsible for, they're things that you can learn from either directly or they might help, you know, spur on other ideas as far as an approach and ways to think about solving problems. And I know that it's because of these building blocks and this approach that Sean is already finding success as a consultant, because even if each company might have different problems and different specific issues, the way you approach them, the framework that you use to identify solutions and identify the causes, that's really where the value is. You know, it's not about copying and pasting. It's really about using those skills that you learn to solve one problem to solve others and not just solve it, right? But create more growth and more opportunity throughout your organization. As you'll hear in the beginning of the episode, we were a little ambitious and thought that we would get both of two of the processes in that I really wanted him to share with the Phrology audience into this one episode, but that just didn't happen. So I've invited Sean back to join me on a future episode soon to talk about the next one, which I'll share a little bit at the end of the episode. But basically, Sean and his team really found a solution for a problem that almost every fraud department has, especially in e-commerce. But I think that it's common in banking and others. It's just with different terms and, and different timeframes. But a lot of times, whether you're using linear rules or supervised machine learning, you're having to wait for the data, wait to see what fraud you missed until you get the chargeback, which is, can sometimes 30, 60, 90 days after the transaction, by that point, fraudsters have had a field day and they've duplicated what worked the last time, what worked that time where you caused the first chargeback several times over. And then when you're putting in a rule, you're implementing that. Well, 
you're putting in a rule or you're training your model 30 or 60 days after on 30 or 60 day old information. So when Sean comes back, he is going to share with, he'll share with you how he and his team found a pretty creative and applicable solution to identify fraud much sooner and not through manual review. So in between manual review and chargeback. So you have something to look forward to. But this time he's going to share about ways that he really identified a lot of areas of opportunity, as well as built communication and credibility and really solved a lot of really unique problems by zooming out and not just looking at the specific problem, not just looking at one aspect of the payment process or the customer journey. So I'll let you listen in on my conversation with Sean Kelly. As per usual, I will put his contact information in the show notes. For this episode, I encourage you to reach out to him if you have any questions or you might want to hire him for a project soon. He is already working on a few really interesting consulting projects. And as you'll hear, he has a lot of wisdom and experience to share and offer. Sean Kelly, I am so glad to have you back with me today on Fraudology. You were on the podcast a couple months ago when you first were kind of, you know, figuring out what you were going to do after leaving seat. And I think you're coming a little closer to that and picking, you've been doing some really interesting consulting projects and working on building something and all that. But you and I tend to have several conversations and I really wanted to have a couple of those on the pod. So thanks for joining me again. Absolutely. It's good to be back. Well, yeah, I feel like we nerd out so often and it's like, oh man, I just wish say that, say that. Well, and I think one of the reasons why we nerd out so often is a couple of things. So, and this is probably selfish of me because I think that one of the things that's good about fraud is learning from other people who think differently than you. But sometimes it's also nice to talk to people that think similar to you, especially when maybe not everyone does, you know, when you kind of feel like the outlier and like, wow, nobody else is thinking about problems the way I do. And I think that you and I are similar in a lot of ways, but at the same time, like different. And you've done some really cool projects recently that I wanted you to come and talk about because I know that there are things that other people don't think about or just don't think about it in the same way. And they solve problems that everyone has. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been really interesting, even in the last few months as I've reflected back and kind of moving into the consulting in, in space of building something and really looking at what what drives me, what am I proud of, what are the what are those things? And both I think you're exactly right. Surrounding yourself with people that think differently than you is great, but there's so much value in also like aligning with and finding those people that think similarly. And you need both of those sides of input, I think, to really to have a good picture of where to go and how to get there and and what works and what doesn't. And people that think differently than you are going to give you a set of advice and feedback that is going to be very different maybe than you're expecting or you would do. And so then having kind of that other, it's not an angel and demon kind of thing. It's, <laughs> it's not, it's not a good and bad. It's just like two very different perspectives. And I, having that balance is great. So yes, very much. I agree. agree. Yeah. And it's not that we talk to people that think similar to us because we just want to hear ourselves talk out of a different voice. It's validating and then building on it. Right. And I think that's something that you and I are pretty good at. But yeah, but also learning from other people. And I, we've been talking offline. It's been interesting and kind of fun for me to be on the sidelines of this journey you've been on as far as thinking about what am I proud of? What did I do? What can I learn? What do I want to 
like, wow, it feels like wide open spaces for the first time. What do I want to be when I grow up? What do I don't want to do next? What did I like? What are, all those things. But also it's fun for me because for the longest time, I felt like one of the only people that gets to talk to so many other different types of companies at different stages and where they are. And I think that when you're at the same company for so long, you just kind of assume that every company's doing what you're doing or dealing with what you're dealing with. And when you become a consultant, you realize like, oh, wow, like actually there's a lot of things I do know or wow, they and and it's not like a it's not putting down those companies, right? Like it's good that they're no, asking for all. help. Yeah. It's and they're all unique, but. It's cool to see the when you come into those projects, there's one that I'm working on right now, but getting to see what value you can provide with that experience and what you have from elsewhere, from other from your own experience, from other merchants that you've talked to, from others in the industry that just kind of some of those things that and I this may come up again later, but that kind of forest for the trees idea, right? You're you as a merchant are focused on your company and what you've built and you maybe haven't been big enough yet to have a payments team and a fraud team and or a fraud team. And so you haven't like really pushed into that. Maybe your operations, maybe your marketing, whatever the area is. I've worked with a few companies that like the key point was the marketing person. Yeah. And it was payments related or fraud related. And so it's it's been really interesting to see that and realize like, oh, there's so much here that we can like get you set up with and what are the things that you need to be looking at and monitoring. And as you go into this, and sometimes it's around a problem, sometimes it's purely around opportunity and like, how do we now we're at this stage of business and we really want to optimize how do we yes. like really focus on getting a higher auth rate? What does that mean? How do we measure that? How do we look at that? What should we be expecting? Where should we be expecting to be or a subscription business? And how do we really focus on our churn and like getting some of that back? And often I think that's where marketing comes into play. And they're the ones that have owned that because people think of churn tied to marketing. That's actually a really interesting thing. Even earlier, as we were talking about chargebacks, kind of that same thing where a lot of times people don't look at chargebacks any differently. It's like, and this this came up in the fraudology report, but chargebacks are a thing in and of themselves, whether they're fraud or non-fraud. And it's like, those are actually very different things with very different ways to solve them and address them, right? And honestly, like the cost of those chargebacks should probably be classified differently because they're, again, very different root cause of them. And so many companies as they've grown and start to get chargebacks, it's just a cost and they don't know what to do, how to do it, know how, how to approach that and how what they should be winning, what they shouldn't, what they should be fighting, what they shouldn't. So anyway, similar to with the subscription, the churn thing. Well, yeah. And to your point, like everyone's at a different place in their journey, depending on how long the business has been around, what their exposure to risk has been. I really, as much as I just default and call it fraud all the time, so I'm just as guilty of it as anyone else. I really believe that we should be rebranding fraud prevention as revenue retention. And if we do that, then payments falls under there too. And as much as I don't use the payment side of my brain on the podcast as much, I use it in consulting all the time because they go hand in hand and it all at the end of the day, what your number one goal is in payments or in fraud is to keep as much money for your company or make more. When those two things to get one, each one in itself has that opportunity, but you put them together and it kind of turbocharges it. And I think that's another reason why you and I can bounce off so many things is that we both understand both of them pretty well. Because when you were at SeatGeek, you had to, but and this happens a lot with startups. Somebody has to take the calls from the acquirer. Somebody has to figure this out. Other times it's finance, but 
they don't really, I don't know. I don't want to diss on all finance people, but a lot of them don't like to optimize things, right? They don't like to change things. They like things to be very predictable. Payments and fraud are anything but predictable. I love problem solving. I love solving like the harder the puzzle, the better, the harder the mystery, the better. And that's why it's fun. And, you know, we can cut your teeth in enterprise and learn all that. But there's so many lessons that can be learned by smaller companies or companies that will be enterprise very soon. And they're on the come up, but they'll get there faster. They lose less money. And if they make more money, both of those cross those lines of fraud and payments to your point. A hundred percent. Yeah. Preventing loss and increasing yeah. what you're going to make. So. Right. Yeah. Both of those things are things. Yeah, you're right. That when payments, you're trying to decrease costs while increasing profits and, and revenue and obviously fraud, same way. So um, diving in a little bit, and I think this leads right into the first project. I guess I wouldn't even call it a project. It was, you know, a way of looking at things. And, you know, when you shared with me a couple of the things that you've looked back on, like, wow, I'm proud of that. Not only am I proud of that, but like, I realized that I don't know if everyone else thinks about things like this, but yeah. man, did it in some case, I mean, both cases, it resulted in a lot of increased profit to your company as well as better efficiencies. And, and of course, I was like, yes, please, because I know that not everyone's thinking of it like this. But at the same time, this one, I'm like, oh, I, as I was thinking, hearing you talk about it first, I was like, oh, I kind of do this in my consultancy all the time. But you have to think, you know, it's different to think like a consultant than it is to think like a practitioner and vice versa. So what when there are issues generally within fraud or payments, right? Generally, we're looking at what's on fire. Right. So like, oh, my gosh, our chargebacks are high or oh, my gosh, like our turn is high or our approval rates are low or whatever that is. And and I know that that's traditionally how we, sometimes that's all our brain can handle because we can't think anything more. But yeah, I think, it, you, yeah, it's really hard to get out of that firefighting mode. It is. Um, and, and how you how you then step back and look at the bigger picture. But um, once you do look at the bigger picture, then you're like, how could I ever go back to firefighting? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's as I've been do more consulting, I'm seeing where this idea of what we're where we're going and what we're talking about here really makes such a big difference. And that yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't look at it and think about it this way, especially as they've grown and are growing from a small into a medium to a large business. Oh, and and then when you, know, you don't think about it so different, you just keep doing the same same thing, yeah. right? So you're just thinking yeah. about this fire and this fire. And so I think in a way we're looking at you know, when we're looking at the fires, we're looking at the sections and the pieces of the overall process, right? The overall customer journey, the overall customer experience, the payment flow, whatever we want to call it. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like, you know, how you did things differently, what that looked like, all those things. Yeah. So, so the, the idea and the concept, the term that I've used for it in the past, and to be fair, this, the concept as a whole was, was brought about by somebody that I worked with previously. So I didn't come up with this myself, but it was this idea of, right. And it's basically looking at the end to end checkout flow from the time that somebody intends to make a purchase and they're enter that checkout flow. I want to buy this. I want to give you my money for whatever service or product you're going to give me. And you go through that checkout flow to into fulfillment and then including chargeback. So I want to be able to, as a company, as a merchant, keep the money that I've been given, right? Not lose it out the door. So it's looking at that end to end process. And within that, there are errors that can happen. You get on the checkout page and there's a validation error. 
Or it's somebody from Canada and you're a U.S. merchant that doesn't yet support Canadian addresses. Or maybe you do, but your checkout form doesn't. And there's errors in validation. And that can be something. Also, a lot of software companies are very agile and act quickly and create bugs that they don't even know are there and don't have monitoring to detect. But those are the (laughs) kinds of things that when you're looking at this idea of throughput, they're picked up on. And all of those have impact. And if you're just looking at the bottom line numbers, yeah, finance is disappointed or your CF is disappointed or your CEO is disappointed Mm -hmm. because your numbers are down this month. Yeah, that sucked. Why? Is it a marketing problem? Is it like who knows where to point that? Or what to fix, right? You often don't know, like you haven't, if you're not monitoring, haven't broken down that full end-to-end checkout flow. And most, most merchants that I've talked to this is a pretty foreign concept. Huh. And it's one of those things that, again, depending on your size, it's like, who owns this? And yes. There's going to be those companies that have that kind of sort of unicorn employee that like gets it and has proactively like, I don't care if I'm just in fraud, like I have this idea and like, they'll they'll look at that big picture or payments or whatever. But, but ultimately, somebody owns or can or should own this. Um, and it, it gives an opportunity as well. And this was something else that, that was in the fraudology report of just like, how do you communicate out to the others internally of why it's important? Why does it matter if chargebacks are high or maybe they're low, but they're low because it's at the cost of insults or false positives or however you're measuring all of those pieces. Everything has an inverse, right? And so what what are those levers? And yay, we're doing great at preventing chargebacks this month, but we're letting millions of dollars not process because we're blocking it, leaving it to be fraud. And we're wrong about that. Or on the payment side, maybe our auth rate is horrific right now. And like, great that those that we're authing, we're doing better on, but our total volume is down and there's a problem there. Or there's a fulfillment problem where, you know, at the point of checkout where you're checking to make sure the product is available, there's something broken there, whatever that looks like. Or it shows areas of opportunity for, hey, this person wanted to buy this. It wasn't in stock, but we didn't suggest something almost the same or an alternative. There's so many different areas that this idea of throughput can highlight. And it changes week to week, month to month. And is in the past, I found tons of value in building this out and monitoring it and looking at that whole funnel. And you start at the top with $30 million for the past month in attempted checkouts. What's the bottom line? How much did you keep in your bank account out of those $30 million of transactions? Wait a minute. Why is there only $4 million that, you know, right. that four felt great, but there's so much being left. And there's a ton of nuance here. We can't get into all the weeds, but obviously there's duplication, right? If somebody goes to check out, their card didn't work because it was over the limit or their issuer flagged it for fraud. Okay. They changed their card. That doesn't mean that they were going to make two purchases. There's work to do if you want to kind of dupe that, but ultimately there's always going to be a difference between the number of attempted beginning checkouts and the bottom line fraud attempts are going to be in there. And so you don't necessarily, if you have 30 million at the top, you don't necessarily want 30 million at the bottom because you don't want those fraud attempts in there. But you want to know what your fraud cost is to balance against your false positives as well. Because again, that's a a very important trade-off. I absolutely love this because it is looking at the holistic picture. But you bring up some really interesting points because even though, even if payments and fraud are going to own it, right? There's a lot of things that can impact those that isn't something you own. And even when I do root cause analysis for chargebacks, that comes into play, right? Whether it's fulfillment, didn't ship things out on time, or it's the website team didn't properly describe the item, or legal didn't include something in the terms of service that was being enforced, but not in the team 
PCOS. Like there's so many different things like that, but they do impact, like it really shows how much the, the whole company impacts that that process, right? Or that payment life cycle. And I think that you're, when you said, when you talked about like how we, what, not only what we provide and what we share with other teams, but how we do it and how in the report, it was so clear as day. And it was crazy to me because it was something I'd noticed anecdotally that like, there seems to be differences once a fraud analyst, always a fraud analyst, you're always going to look at like trend analysis. So, huh, there's some merchants who are like, wow, I feel really appreciated. And I have a seat at the table and I get to have impact and I get, get heard and people understand that this impacts fraud and marketing is going to tell me before they do something crazy, those things. And what's the difference between them and the people that are like, you know, you know, nobody likes people in fraud and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's this difference between like taking the time to explain this is why it matters. And one of the benefits of this and, and looking at it from a holistic perspective is that you can bring people along for the journey. So you can put together a task force. There's one merchant that I hope I can have him on. I just actually reminded myself that I'm writing it down again. So I remember, but he created a fraud squad internally at his company. And it was basically a stakeholder from each, like each team or department that has a stake throughout that whole process and creating, literally mapping out the process, right? From authorization to fraud review to settlement to fulfillment or well, fulfillment first, then settlement, but all the way through and then all the way to chargeback and then looking at the numbers, right? And like you said, might start with 20 million at checkout, whoever the process starts when somebody presses the checkout button, how much was sent to authorization, how much was then reviewed for fraud, whether it was automatically or our manual review team, maybe we need to separate those out, then going through each. And then it's like, well, why is there that difference between, so looking at each step, each stepping stone, basically. So the, or the latter, right from, okay, there's more money in the auth bucket than there is in the review for fraud. Well, what makes up those differences and diving into your decline reason codes and talking with your payment processors and realizing, oh, because maybe it's the fact that you only do post-auth fraud checks and you're, the issuers are getting sick of having to tell you no all the time or realizing, wow, you're putting a lot of garbage through. We don't trust you. We're going to auth less. Or maybe it's the fact that you have a lot of fraud complaints or TC40s filled out or notification of fraud. And yeah. so could how be, can we could reduce be ABS, those? It could be there's, And that's where, again, it I, I mentioned that a little bit, but the, the validation side of it, there's plenty of merchants that are fully blocking on ABS mismatches. Oh my gosh, I Sometimes know. that's a good thing. Oftentimes it's not. No, you know, not in 2023. And, and, I mean, honestly, and I how, think how you like, handle that. Do you, and even there's opportunities there. And like, are you doing that autofill? Mm. You know, a lot of forms have that where you start typing your address, it identifies it. So it's entered correctly. There's all, there's all kinds of solutions, but if you don't know that there's a problem there, if you don't know that there's opportunity to increase. So how do you, how do you look at that? How do you measure that? And yes, all of that, all of that dials into this like holistic look of that flow. And to your point, if you're just looking at one piece, you're missing the relation in both directions and you're missing the bigger picture. And if you're not looking at that, you're putting out fire after fire, but like nothing's really getting better, right? Because you're not, you're not problem solving continually. And I know that not every company wants people to pick up rocks and look at what's underneath. <laughs> you know, I mean, you call them unicorn employees and I feel like I was that, you were that, like we know people that sure were, were assigned fraud, but what does that mean? Well, we're going to do everything all the time, every day, every project is how can we keep more money for our, our team? How can we reduce, like reduce losses, all that. 
there are other people or other people in the company, right? Like, yeah, we might call them unicorn employees because we were them, but other people in the company call them massive pains in the asses, right? Because (laughs) they don't want them to tell them, Hey, like this thing is broken or this is in your wheel, you know, but that's why I bring up, like, that's why I brought up the point of like creating, you know, whether it's a fraud squad or you call it something else where you get in a room and say, Hey, I was looking at this and I'd love to understand, like, what does this look like? And then a lot of times what I end up doing for clients when I'm doing a full assessment is I'm mapping out those things for them and saying like, and I'm primarily doing it from a fraud and payments lens, but I'm saying, Hey, here's some opportunity where you might want to go to your UX team, or you might to talk about the autofill of address or other things like that. Right. I mean, cause actually autofill of address is an interesting one where if you don't have that, sometimes you can, for physical goods client companies, they can have more return to sender because the person put in the wrong address. So it's not just ABS. Also that can be a refund fraud issue. And I mean, well, it's not just that, but it's like, because they're putting in different variations of their address where they're putting North somewhere else or whatever, then some fraud systems are only looking at exactly the way it was put in before. So if you don't have it uniform at the beginning at checkout and, and your customer gets to decide how their address is put in, if it's North one, two, three, but the last one was one, two, three North and one, two, three North is on the negative list. That's a new file. And too many fraudsters are learning that. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. But yeah, I think, yeah, go please. I was just going to say, 
it's interesting the other day on working on a project with a client, I went through their checkout flow and I was out of town. And when I added my credit card to my account, it was a subscription service. And I added the credit card to my account and I saw that on my profile page, even though I had put in my zip and my city and my state correct to my billing address, it pulled based on GOIP lookup where I was doing this from and put in a zip code that I had not 100% had not typed in. And especially with something like AVS, where if you're not outright blocking, it's up to the issuer whether they're going to accept it or not, if it's incorrect. And depending on how there's a number of factors there, but you may you may still have 90% of your transactions going through, even though a ton of your zip codes are wrong and not even in nearby locations, right? And you don't know this. And again, if you're, maybe it's from Agile, like you're a company that's just like moving, building quickly. It was an error that was a mistake. Or fixing whatever's right in front of them and not thinking about the cause and the effect in every in each direction. Yeah. Totally, totally. And so again, it's one of those things like, it's going to make small, most people are in their proximity of where they live when they're checking out just so it's not it's not like i'm the the core use case but, but what about people with vpns or to, people with proxies totally, or even, that's, or that's enough to a vpn for their company right auth rate ultimate checkout rate and again mm-hmm. if i'm required to use a piece of software for a job or school or whatever yeah i'm going to be sticky and i'm going to push through that until i get through so ultimately they're still going to get my money but there's probably with another there's card certainly more right. merchants that aren't in that case where yeah, I'm going to maybe give you a couple tries. And if you can't charge two or three different cards that I've tried, okay, something's broken on your side. Screw this. I'm going to go somewhere else. Or, or you don't want my I'll money. Do this later obviously. And then I forget yeah. about it. Oh, right. Whatever. So, or, oh, I'll call yeah. customer service. <laughs> Never. And while the number, and I don't remember what it exactly is, but I know it's come up significantly in the last 10 years. We're used to be able to say, okay, for every one customer call, you know, or every one retry by a customer that gets through on a different payment method that might equal 5x well now because so many people don't we just don't we're so used to instant gratification we don't want to call anyone like I have a hard enough time calling the doctor to make like an annual appointment. Why am I going to call customer service for a company when I was just trying to get them my credit card online and do it faster? It's now like 10 or 20x. So it's a good point, right? And you may not know about that until you do this and look and go, well, what? where did that money go in between this step and that step? So when you changed your focus on this project you guys worked on from kind of siloed view and looking at just the one part of each piece or each one piece of the whole part and looking instead of at the trees, but kind of the forest, what were some of the things that changed? What were some of the outcomes that you expected or didn't expect? So certainly a big one was the communication piece, right? And so we started sending out a monthly, what we called a monthly throughput report. And that went to our executive team, kind of the heads of the teams that were interested as we talked about looking at things this way, different people were interested. So that was a list that kind of built and people got that and expected to get that. It You start to, especially as you start to establish those baselines and say, okay, this is our normal kind of auth rate. This is our normal fraud reject rate. This is our normal like 
failed availability, inventory availability, whatever those different pieces are for you as a merchant, you start to see where there's like, sometimes there's low hanging fruit right off the bat and areas that you can address and make some big movements. But then even over time, you you start to get a better picture to know where you can prioritize things. And especially as your companies go through phases of there's so many like big opportunities, that's what you've got to focus on. Who cares if we can bump our auth rate by 50 basis point? That isn't, that's an opportunity and that's going to impact that bottom line, but not nearly to the extent of X, Y, and Z, right? And so, but at least everybody is informed and knows that. And then when you go through those times of like, okay, let's focus on optimization and how do we take what we have right now? Like marketing's running, everything's kind of running. Let's, how now do we dial in auth rate? How do we like push that a little bit more? Whatever those various things are, it opens up a lot of opportunity for like deeper dives. And how do you now break this out by cohort Ah. or different ways of, from the data side, breaking this down and looking at it. So those were some of those things. I would imagine that you would also create a list of a list for your roadmap, right? So when you're prioritizing things, that's really helping you with your roadmap and probably helping other teams too. Because sometimes with your roadmap, it's like, what do we think would be cool? Or what do we think might work? Well, this, you already have ROI. Also, it's probably justifying. Yeah you're probably justifying new resources because you have an ROI. Hey, we have this drop-off. We have this cliff in between this stage to this stage. We've identified it's this. If we just put in this or we hire one person to look at that or whatever, that's an easy conversation to have with the C-suite. You're able to show them that. Okay. And then on the back end side, I think the other list it creates is a really awesome, like when you're collecting, now you are able to say, hey, when we decrease that gap from this step to that step, we save the company X. Not only do we save that, but now it's also enabling X amount of sales and money. I'm going to make sure I put that on my annual performance report to say, hey, guys, I saved this and I increased that. And where's my raise? We all know it's not that easy. But when you have numbers like that and you can prove it with data and all executives and all C-suite really like pretty pictures with nice graphs, like the simpler, the better. Um, And a throughput, looking at it from a holistic and where they can actually see it. All of a sudden they're like, wow. And even if you weren't the team that fixed that, you spearheaded that and it provides a really good, it's just another way to look at the health report for your company. And yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great way to think about it. And that, the other thing that I think is really helpful is it gives a layer of accountability, right? Mm. Where there were times where like, if you're just looking at fraud and you're just looking at track, obviously plenty of companies, that's your like core metric. Yeah. And we mentioned this a little bit ago, but that's great if you get your chargeback rate down and everybody applauds that and that, but how much is being left up here at the reject rate yes. and how many orders are you not letting through, right? And that those are two just kind of more or less diametrically opposed metrics in that case, but then there's those other outlying ones and how does that then marry into all of the other metrics that you're looking at? And okay, we can get even being able to not point fingers, but highlight what the areas of opportunity and areas of of lacking are around, hey, we're getting all these orders through, but then we have an inventory problem and there's not enough inventory available for the people that want to buy. 
And how, how do we solve that? How do we get ahead of that and get all, all of those pieces? All of a sudden, there's that level of accountability because it's not, this isn't just a fraud report. This isn't just a payments report. It's this kind of whole view of what's happening. And how many if products, if oh product gosh, is screwing up the checkout form, yes. that don't just look at us and all of the pieces are interconnected, <laughs> right? And so, so how you can, how you can look at that and help answer and build the story for what's happening and then come up with a solution to it. Yeah. Well, I swear I'm not saying this because they're the sponsor right now, but in talking to Nate Carl, the CEO of SPAC, and he kind of brought it up on the last time he was on the podcast a few months ago, but he said, he's told me, you know, it's pretty incredible. I guess he's seen the benefits of what can happen when every department has the same amount of data, has the same data, has access to like the same set of truth. Because one of the things that SPEC does is connects everything to, to each other and allows data to all be in one place. So you might have a silo of data here and a silo of data there from different different systems, different teams, right? Like your market. So your marketing team might have one number for conversion, but then you might have another number for authorizations. And those are very, those can be different. And your marketing department might be looking at conversion, but they're not looking at, well, how much actually gets like, do not pat yourself on the back that you increase conversion by X percent. If a lot of those are turning into declines or, you know, they're being abandoned or whatever, you know, or we're having to cancel it because of fraud or it's in a, or you're paying this affiliate money, but yet we canceled all those transactions for fraud. Like you're just looking at that one piece. And so spec has been noticing like when they really combine, they combine all the data and they create one set of data across every single team. Talk about accountability and how you can then all start from the same place of having a common set of truths that I think we all are used to this being normal and having, okay, this is my sandbox and I have to stay there and every department has a different sandbox and whatever. But it's, there's a lot of, you know, just like at the beginning, you know, when you said it can be hard to change your mindset from fighting fires every day or kind of doing the same thing every day and keeping the status quo and trying to fix the problem that's right in front of your face. Once you look at things holistically, once you're able to understand the cause and effect, not just between fraud and chargebacks or not just between, you know, your approval rate and your charge rate. But once you can understand the cause and effect all the way through, you're not going to think about it the same way again. And you get to work on cooler problems and you get to have more visibility in your company and get to have more tangible outcomes. Absolutely. And that's that I think that's a great way of summing it up. And that's where as I've started working with these different companies, I'm like, oh, I just wish that there was this same view of, and they both for my own sake of being able to like help and assess the health and where, where there are needs as well as their own insight and understanding what this flow looks like because mm -hmm. yeah, it becomes so valuable. It does. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, from my perspective, I, I don't start at the checkout, but I start from authorization, right? And take out the dupes and then go to fulfillment and all that. And you know, it's primarily through the lens of fraud and checkbacks, but like it's a start. And then my hope is that companies will start to go, oh, how do we improve this piece? How do we improve that piece? Because as I said on a rant several episodes ago, I think it was one on false positives where I'm starting to see this complacency and I understand why we're tired. I understand why we're overwhelmed. I understand why we're like feeling beat up. I actually 
this is going to be a LinkedIn post the other day. And then like most things in my life, I got sidetracked, but I was talking to a client the other day and they're in the weeds on this, right? Like just in a lot of ways, they've had to tighten up one place and and know that this, another place is sacrificed to try to get off of a list and those things. And they were saying like, we didn't even get to pick our fraud provider because our leadership did. And our leadership was slick salesman that was like, Hey, if you, if you use us for this, well, we can throw in fraud prevention for cheaper. And the senior your leaders are thinking, oh, fraud prevention is fraud prevention. Cool. It's cheaper on the upfront, but way, way, way more expensive. That's another thing, right? When you're looking at the holistic view, you can realize, okay, so we are paying less like incrementally here. The costs, when we're looking all the way to the chargeback, holy crap, are our chargebacks higher? But I just kind of blurted out to my client when they were talking about this isn't like, it's not just the bad guys that we're fighting, right? It's also like internally and hopefully we aren't fighting them. Hopefully instead we're saying, hey guys, I can add value and look at me repeatedly providing value and change that around. But when it feels like both sides are just like all of you, I said, you know what? As they say, shit rolls downhill and fraud is like at the bottom of the hill. And my client looked at me and she goes, I would actually say that fraud was like in a moat. Like there's a moat around the hill and all the shit just gets stuck there. And I was like, Doesn't you are so yeah. right. Yeah. So it is overwhelming. But as you start to zoom out, actually gets easier. And I think that's really you know what you learned and why I'm so glad that you brought this example because it makes so much sense, but not half the time I'm not even thinking of these things. Right. So it's and it's always so much better for people to hear from someone that's done it and survived and come out better for it. And this is also a method of thinking that had you not done that when you were a merchant, I wonder if you would have had such a seamless transition to being a consultant. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And that's I think that's where for me, like as I looked back and then obviously I didn't orchestrate everything at all, just kind of the way that life happens happened. And you start to see, oh, wow, man, this was so valuable. I didn't like I felt it was valuable then, but I see it even more now because I'm working with these companies that don't have a look at this and they And again, not to get off track, but as we had talked about, sometimes companies aren't looking, and this was in the report, aren't looking at the different types of chargebacks that are coming in. They're not breaking out fraud versus non-fraud. And to somebody that's been working in the industry for a long time, that's like table stakes. But there's so many companies that they're not staffed with chargeback people. They've Some companies aren't even fighting their chargebacks. Are just taking them and think see it as a a cost of doing business, not realizing how much money that they're they're leaving on the table and opportunities that that's telling them how to improve their product, improve their customer experience, improve whatever those pieces are. You have no idea, right? And Mm -hmm. it's easy for a company to say, "Yeah, we don't really have a fraud problem because our chargebacks aren't high." Well, (laughs) what make you do have chargebacks? What makes up your chargebacks? That's great that you're staying at that 0.3 percent or under. But that's still 0.3%. Right. What what makes that up? Is it people that wanted to cancel and you didn't give them an opportunity to? Is it whatever? They obviously could could and well, yeah. at some point will be a whole episode in itself, I'm sure. Oh, there, yeah, there yeah. definitely can be. But yeah, I think that's the point too, is you're increasing the customer experience, which then creates repeat customers because most people, most people who file a chargeback, right? Yep. And I would say that a lot of, there are probably people, at least on the service, service side of chargebacks that probably were like, they don't know they can call their bank. They didn't think about it, whatever, but they're not coming 
coming back. So what are you doing to cause those? Now, yes, do we know that there are people out there who will maliciously file charge? Absolutely. But if you are pretty darn good at root cause analysis and understanding your chargebacks, you can actually find ways to get rid of them too. Whether you're putting in new processes or policies or other things. I certainly did that at the travel agency and it still helps. Make sure that at least, okay, yep, you stole from me once, but you're not going to do it again. And here's what, how, and not just by putting them on a negative list either. There's other ways to do it. And I think that's the piece that has been, I guess I'm not surprised by it in my career anymore, but it certainly surprised me a lot towards the beginning was that most people, when they think of chargeback management, whether they're outsourcing it or whether they are finding, hiring someone in-house, they see it as responding to the chargeback. Well, at that point, you've already lost the money. So, but what can you learn from that, right? So I believe in a one-two punch where, yes, we're going to reply to that and we're going to, you know, have templates and all those things that are going to have the highest win rate possible. But let's also provide root cause analytics. Let's look at where are those coming from? Is there a specific bank where there's more chargebacks coming in than others? Are there, you know, what are the reason codes? And while I put that question in about separating out fraud and payment chargebacks and my friend who, you know, the person that was co-writing the survey with me, Shoshana, I adore her so much, but she's so used to working with people that, you know, work for the biggest companies in the world. I don't think I asked her to do an over-under, but I know that she kind of thought that was like a duh question. And when it came back, she was like, oh, that's a way bigger number than I thought it would be. I was like, I'm not as surprised, but you're absolutely right. When you're looking at the problem in a vacuum and you're not looking at the cause and the effect, then you're not even going to think about, you're just going to think a chargeback is a chargeback. You're not going to think about the fact that service level chargebacks and fraud level chargebacks, as well as prior errors, though, those are usually, those should be low. If they aren't, then you get on the phone and you yell at your processor, but you know, those are easier to fight, but, or your processor should be handling them before they ever get to you and charge and count against you. But those things are, you're going to solve them in different ways. So why wouldn't you, not only are you going to solve them in different ways, they were caused because of different problems. So they should absolutely be, in my mind, it's just a no brainer. But like, again, when you're not looking with the lens of how can we fix everything? How can we make it better? Why did that happen? And what can I do to change it? Then you're just like, you're just putting together a number and a metric that doesn't have a ton of value or meaning and won't change other than going up or in the wrong direction. <laughs> true. Very, very true. Well, we could obviously talk about this for a while and funny enough, haha, we jokes always on me. I always think that I can talk about so many more things in such a short amount of time, but you know, we were going to talk about one other thing that you did that I think is really impressive that I know that other merchants, whether they're in digital or physical goods are really going to find value in, but we are going to have to say, save that for a little bit later because we really have hit the time limit, but I'm so grateful for you to share this. And I wanted to know first, you know, do you have any, anything else you wanted to share or any final thoughts about the, the throughput project or anything else that you're working on before we call it a day on this episode and come back again soon? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the underlying idea here is really taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture. Where does this piece fit in? Even when we were talking about accountability, sometimes sometimes accountability on the outset doesn't feel good. You don't want others knowing and watching and seeing like that you're, you're, you know, something as simple as your chargeback, fraud chargeback rate is high. Yeah, that doesn't feel good. And that puts you under the spotlight and that puts the onus on you of how you're going to deal with that. 
but really you don't get the good times of being able to celebrate your wins if you're not also taking responsibility for your loss, right? And really that's where taking these bigger pictures and like really pushing into why it's important to look at the whole picture and take that and create those systems of accountability really creates a ton of value for you and your career, for you and your position, for the company as a whole, for your team, whatever that might be. And so there's other areas where you can can have the same underlying thinking to really develop how you look at something like a checkout flow. It doesn't have to be exactly this. This isn't a perfect framework by any means, but it's, I think, a pretty easy one to see the value in and everything marketing leads up to the point that people get to check out. Marketing's super stoked with how much they're getting into that top of that funnel would be pretty disheartening to know how much is actually getting to the bottom, right? And whose fault is that? What what's What's the cause of that? And yeah, just... Those, those ways and areas of being able to, to step back and look at the bigger picture, I think are, are really important and, and thinking it's not always outside the box, but sometimes it is and, and pushing into that. Sometimes it's within your team. Sometimes it's bigger than your team and advocating for that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It doesn't always feel great to be like, oh, this was on us or like, oh, our team doesn't do this or like this was because of something we did or whatever. But it's such a great feeling to fix it. And to be able to say like, hey, look at what we did. And also applying that. I'm glad that you said that, you know, it's not just about throughput. It's also about applying this thought process, right? Of zooming out and seeing how are these pieces connected and in between those pieces. Because I really feel like it's between the silos and between the pieces where the biggest opportunities are. That's usually, you know, where the cracks, like it literally causes a crack and things slip through. And sometimes it's a crack because like, well, who owns it? It's in between my department and your department. Or I don't even know about it because it's in between my department and your department. And I thought the line was here and you thought the line was there and there's a gap. So it's really about like the way of thinking of like, okay, here's the problem, but why do we have that problem? And then once we identify why we have that problem, well, then how do we not have that problem? But then looking at the relationships and stuff. And I do know that just like you said, that there's a lot of benefits that you can't quantify, like having other people in your company go, oh, wow, you really care about this. Or, oh, our stock price went up because we were able to have better earnings this year. Or our bonuses went up because we had higher profits, like whether it's public or private company, it depends. But either way, really, it's about wanting to always improve and wanting to make things better for the sake of the whole, right? Rather than just, I'm just in charge for my piece with my piece. And as long as, you know, the numbers within the piece that I'm responsible for are okay, then I'm fine. It's the people who look outside the people like you that not only usually are, you know, appreciated in their company for a great deal of time, but also that do well at other types of companies, you know, because these are the types of frameworks that you can apply to any company outside of no just matter the, the vertical size. you're in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. No matter the size. And they, they scale well. So start this when it's small and easy and you it's can easier. talk to the three people that are the stakeholders to, to yep. build that, that rapport and that, to your point, framework that will scale up as you get bigger. And each of these different areas is owned by a different team at some point. Very good point. Thanks again, Sean. And I'm Absolutely. excited to have you back soon. We'll talk more about you know what you guys did on your team to really increase visibility into fraud way before chargebacks ever happened and really shrunk up that time frame from 30 to 60 days. And not it's not about paying for alerts or anything like that, though that's always an option. How you, through process change, 
changes, which is one of my favorite things to geek out over. How through process changes, you guys were able to learn from fraud almost immediately from rather than waiting. And I think that it's actually something I hadn't heard of before. So I'm excited. I mean, parts of it are, but not all the way. So I'm excited for you to share that next time you come on. So thank you again so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Grace. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.